Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Uh, welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. Um, I, I guess I always say this, but I'm very excited to have uh, our guest on today. Um, it really is uh, one of the, the writers that I always get excited to read whenever she has something new. I think she's probably my favorite thinker about morality and radicalism, and particularly if you're interested in this, um, what a kind of relationship between Marxism a revolutionary agenda and morality is. Um, it's Professor Vanessa Wills, and today um, we're going to be talking about not only her kind of broader uh, work, but also some of the recent interventions she has made that I think are very timely, uh, but I, I also think quite timeless, on the relationship between Marxism and white privilege. So Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and, and for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, it's it's quite deserved. So uh, the pleasure's all uh, mine. Um, I think let's you know start with the question I ask all our guests, and I, and I think it's really interesting, important. I mean, you know, what would you say was your kind of broader intellectual and personal inspirations, and how have they kind of informed your work? Um, and, and I don't know if you want to use this term, but you know, kind of scholarly and activist career. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, so it's no secret, of course, that one of my most important uh, scholarly inspirations and kind of um, source of frameworks for thinking about the world and thinking about activism is Karl Marx. Uh, but then it's a question of how that came to be the case, right? And I've been thinking lately, um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, going through some old books. And I found um, a book that my uh, father had that I well, that I had sort of reappropriated from my father's library. <laughs> I was gonna say he gave it to me, but that's only slightly true. <laughs> um, and, um, and it, it, it triggered me to think back on this time in my life as a young girl. And I was thinking about this again uh, just yesterday, actually. Uh, so when I was growing up, I grew up in Philadelphia. And my father, uh, who is a... My parents are both immigrants from Guyana. And uh, my father, um, a now retired uh, high school biology teacher... And in any case, there were a lot of books uh, at the at home. And I was a voracious reader. No one will be surprised to learn that this was true. And I so I was constantly reading the books that were for kids and, you know, and that were for me. And then I um, kept reading and kept reading. And I was sort of outstripping, you know, the rate at which books were coming in, even though books were coming in at quite a a fast clip. My parents, uh, you know, cared a lot about my education and that I read. So anyway, I started working my way into my dad's books. Mm -hmm. And my dad had this uh, sort of collection of uh, books like Coming of Age in Mississippi, 
which is uh, a book written by, um, I believe the author is Anne Moody. And, um, and that was uh, about uh, her experience as a, a Black girl um, growing up in the segregationist South and becoming an activist. And he had, so, so that's a book that I read. And I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I read Invisible Man, and I read write all of these books. And um, recently, in recent years, I've been thinking back to that time because it's so clear now in retrospect, <laughs> right, what a lasting impression that those had. And uh, and even though, you know, I uh, sort of drifted towards uh, some kind of more moderate liberalism in my teen years, uh, it was the experience of the... Um, any war movement in the early 2000s that I think kind of called me back to my intellectual roots that had been planted back then in my childhood. And uh, so I, I, I would say intellectually, you know, I'm very much shaped by a kind of conversation of Black radical thinkers. Um, and then also uh, in my in my early and mid twenties is when I started to learn more about Marxism, and so that became an important influence as well. And of course, the conjuncture of the two. Wow, I mean, I think that that kind of leads to the next question, though, is that I, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people would properly, I would say, consider Marxism. The first word that they would come up is not necessarily morality. Um, and certainly a lot of historically Marxist revolutionary movements have eschewed you know, morality as like this quite bourgeois. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you've really taken it seriously um, yeah. and really tried to take seriously what that relationship is. And kind of before getting into you know, how you've done that, I was kind of very interested from this basis. How did you go from you know really having a discussion through Marx with kind of black radical thinkers to saying I want to do really intense? Uh, and if you haven't read Vanessa's book, I would suggest you do. But also put on some coffee because it is very intense, sophisticated theoretical <laughs> work on morality, what it means, and how Marx helps us transform what not only it is to be moral, but epistemologically how we know yeah. what we know is moral and why that's yeah. important. Yeah. Um, so I was, so I was pursuing a, uh, I'm a philosopher and I was pursuing okay. my uh, PhD in philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. And I started to get interested in this kind of area of analytic meta-ethics and that uh, discussion is largely animated by questions uh, precisely about what makes something moral? Uh, what are we doing when we engage in moral discourse? How do we know uh, moral truths if moral truths exist at all, right? And so um, I was already thinking about those questions and at the same time, I was going to anti-war protests all the time and uh, working and learning from and learning with uh, other socialists. And I was moving leftward in my political orientation. And 
at some point that just became totally unsustainable because there's only so many hours in the day. I'm of course a finite being. Uh, and, I, and so I started to think, well, how can I bring these two things together? Especially since I was asking, um, you know, of just my friends who were socialists, I was asking them, well, what does Marxism have to say about morality? Um, and at the time, I wasn't terribly satisfied with the answers that I was being presented with. So, um, for example, uh, Trotsky, Leon Trotsky has a book called Their Morals and Ours. And uh, there's things that Trotsky does well in that book. But one of the things that I found very unsatisfying is that he essentially uh, takes on the kind of Marxist critique, right, that uh, much morality operates as a kind of bulwark of capitalist rule. <clears throat> and he argues, well, proletarians, workers have our own morality. Um, and he says, well, we're workers and we're with the workers movement and we uh, are in solidarity with the workers movement. And so it's proletarian morality that we care about. And I thought, OK, but when we talk about morality, uh, usually what we mean, what we think of as essential to morality is that it is universal, that it counts for mm -hmm. everyone, right? That it's not just a matter of <clears throat> sort of, you know, violating some code of some particular uh, partial section of humanity, right? But that we're actually either violating or uh, acting in uh, accordance with um, standards of behavior that apply to us, you know, as human beings, right? And so the question, so then I wanted to know, well, does Marxism have the resources for that? Because it seems to me that if it, if it, if, if it turned out to be the case that it didn't, right, then the critics are right when they say, well, this is just an, you know, this amoral theory. And because it's amoral, uh, it can't say enough about human agency, and it can't do this that, and the other, right. Um, and so that's, that's what got me moving right towards these questions of, you know, well, what does it mean um, to talk about humanity, right? You know, and this idea of this kind of universal subject, right? What is that? What could that be? Um, and of course, how how would we know, right? What is moral or or immoral, right? And mm -hmm. so that that's that's the kind of path that I took into that set of questions with respect to Marxism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could say it's, it's a, you know, obviously a very narrow topic. I mean, mm -hmm. wow. Like, I think. <laughs> it's niche, I, I, but. Yeah. No, no, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's extremely important. Um, well, let me tell you something it. that's interesting about it uh, that I realized only after the fact. So uh, yeah. folks will uh, probably also not be surprised by the fact that philosophy is, uh, there are very few uh, Black philosopher, Black academic philosophers, right? And that's for mm. all kinds of reasons. Um, of odious reasons, mostly. Um, and uh, so, so, okay, so there's few, there's, there's a relatively few black philosophers, a relatively high proportion of the black philosophers that there are, have written their dissertations on the topic of Marx and morality. 
Really? So, yes. So Tommy Shelby, who's at mm. Harvard, that was the topic of his dissertation. Um, I actually didn't know this when I chose my topic, um, but he uh, also got his PhD at Pittsburgh and wrote his dissertation on Marx and ethics. Um, Cornell West wrote his dissertation on Marx and ethics, and so uh, which is the topic of his first book, is based on yes. his dissertation on Marx and morality. Um, and Charles Mills um, wrote his dissertation on on topics sort of closely related, right, in, to this question of Marx and morality. I mean, so it's this interesting kind of sociological fact. Um, yeah. That, you know, especially when you think about the background context, which is, as you say, it's rather a niche topic uh, within mm. academic philosophy. So, yeah, I mean, there's something in that, right? This kind of, you know, being drawn to this kind of nexus of philosophical abstraction, right? Um, mm. And and radical theory, of course. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. But I think it's like a lot of niche topics, I should say, because I was mm -hmm, joking mm -hmm. slightly before, and that, you know, mm -hmm. it is almost niche because I think you have to have, and I know this might sound strange, but I mean, for people who, like yourself, have done, I mean, you have to have quite a bit of, I think, fortitude and courage to be able to ask these large questions. And they are yeah. serious and large questions. And they, you know, it's the kind of thing in which, you know, you have to kind of say to yourself, well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself over to this. I'm gonna take this seriously. And without getting fully into it, I, I'm sure, you know, asking such really important, profound, large questions about essentially, what is that relationship between the material movement of history and the question of morality and us as moral and also material subjects? Um, mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing where you're saying, I'm willing to make sacrifices to stare into this abyss, so to speak. Like, right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I but, mean, one of the things about this is that I, I mean, I don't know how other academics produce work. I, the only way I know how to do it is to just pick something that I am obsessively, uh, <laughs> obsessively curious about and drawn to. I mean, my life would probably go better in all sorts of ways <laughs> if I were able to motivate myself in some other fashion. But, uh, you know, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's what happened was that I, I became interested in that question. And so I would just get up and uh, work for 16 hours to figure it out because I was just, you know, I was, I was just like, I got into, I mean, the thing is like, I was writing, I was, I was working, I was writing. Um, I, but most importantly, I just really wanted to know the answer. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, and I, and, and like, I couldn't find the answer. And I was like, but I, but I need mm -hmm. to know, <laughs> I need to know this. And that's essentially what, you know, more recent things that I've done, um, uh, you know, on uh, the question of false consciousness or thinking about white privilege. It's the same thing, right? I'm just sort of like, I really need to know the answer to this question. It's important. <laughs> well, I think that, that takes to kind of the second part of this question, which is, you know, you, I, I've really been impressed and it, it's not just yourself, but I, I would definitely put you up there where as a, I hesitate to say Marxist philosopher, but I will for 
ease, if that's all right. Um, oh, yeah. But- <laughs> and for accuracy, I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that you really attempt to, you know, do very, very serious philosophical work, but also treat Marxism as a living theory. Um, yeah. And in your recent article, I mean, it's not the first time someone's done something like this, and, and mm-hmm. I certainly have my work played this, mm-hmm. but I thought it was very, very nice the ways in which you almost talked about, and you didn't use the word dialectic, but I read it, if it's all right, almost like a dialectical relation between this kind of theoretical conceptual part of Marxism and the political rhetorical part. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be interesting to, you know, explore a little bit before getting into the specific questions uh, that I think are quite timely about white privilege and socialist morality, about Mm -hmm. how you think about those categories how they're kind of related to each other. And as a, a, a scholar who, you know, really, I think, you know, spent so much time, you know, taking seriously, you know, very rigorous philosophical study, how one engages with that in both your work, but then also as a public intellectual. Hmm, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things, and and this is, I think, often the case and certainly the case when you think about things dialectically is that on one level there is no difference right and the kind of and the kind of the you know the theoretical and the conceptual and the political and rhetorical are you know are always kind of intertwined and 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 the same thing um i mean uh so so thinking about this question of morality, for example, right, just to stick with that thread, and to think about why is it unsatisfactory to say, well, we just have a we just have a morality that's for this particular part of society. I mean, um, the, 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 I think one of the things that's so valuable about Marxist thought is its ability, its power to think through a way of overcoming that kind of separation between the the theory that belongs to one group or one section of society and theory that has a kind of you know general validity um and there's a way of jumping the gun there and uh simply disregarding part knowledge or kind of per perspectival or sub- or subjective mm. perspectives in order to um, try to get at something that at least has the label of universality um, mm. but in in fact right uh, to 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 kind of bridge that gap is a political task um, part of what makes for example the uh, the struggle of the of, of workers, right? The the role of the workers' movement. Um, what makes it the sort of thing that can be a candidate 
uh, for uh, something that has a, a consciousness and a perspective belonging to it that deserves to be considered universal um, is that the conditions of the working class are themselves universalizable and that that's the mm -hmm. task of the working class and that the and that it's it's possible to actually create a society in which everyone is similarly situated um, in terms of their relationship to production mm -hmm. and the reason why production matters so much uh is that uh, there's a tendency to think about production just in terms of the factory floor, right? And so that's what Marx and Marxists are concerned about only. Um, but of course, the most important insight of Marxism, to my view, uh, is that we are our products, right? That human beings and their life conditions and their thoughts and their theory are all human products. Um, and so uh, the kind of creation of, uh, of, of a kind of universal perspective or of, of a kind of human, I mean, to get very uh, kind of lofty about this, right? <laughs> of a kind of like, you know, real like human, um, brotherhood, siblinghood, right? Mm -hmm. These are things that have to be created concretely, right? Mm -hmm. They have to be produced. Um, and, and, and then, right, it's in, the, it's, in, it's in that process that we can talk about um, the, the creation of a kind of morality that governs us as human beings in terms of how we treat one another. In other words, mm -hmm. to put that a little bit more briefly, right, there's, there's an important distinction between you know, the, the human as this kind of mere empty abstraction and then the human, right, as a kind of product of social transformation and, and, and change, right, so that we have links with one another and interdependencies with one another that are consciously created and recognized as such. Mm. It, and for me, that's such an interesting kind of analysis of it because I've always been struck by how little people took seriously the actual ways in which capitalism isn't just an economic morality but it's itself a moral economy right mm -hmm. it involves the production of particularized moral relations one which I think social reproduction theory has probably better than any other perspective taking mm -hmm. quite seriously mm -hmm. um, and so Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the tricks that have been missed is how much capitalism has universalized its morality in a way that transcends merely its traditional explicit values of, you know, efficiency and profit making, etc. To right. one, um, you know, this is how we can exist as moral subjects and it's the only way we can exist as moral subjects and you see right. it reinforced every day so you you know you say you're anti-capitalist but how else are you going to come out and provide for your family and that's a right. very first feeling that people you know have so i think what you just said kind of for me it's at the heart of if you are going to think about a different society you mm -hmm. need to take seriously how you would universalize a different living moral economy um, yeah, and and I mean, one of the things that is, I think, 
important to note here. So, so lots of folks who are familiar with Marx are familiar with his claim that the ruling ideas in any society are always the ideas of the ruling class. And how that sometimes gets misinterpreted, right, is to suggest that somehow they are also the only ideas, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. That only right, and so and so, yeah. We have this question of the the actual um, material organization of capitalism uh, giving rise to all kinds of moral claims within its within its sphere, right? But there's also this this rival, insurgent, revolutionary. Uh, morality of working people uh, mm. that is I mean when when you take for example a, a slogan like um, people not profit right yes. that's obviously as we can see very clearly with COVID-19 that is of course not the dominant morality in terms of you know that's not the morality that is being imposed onto society by people mm -hmm. in positions uh you know most able to impose it right um mm -hmm. that is a uh, that is a radical morality from below and mm -hmm. the the thing is that that is not just a kind of uh ideal uh, merely ideal, merely theoretical uh, conception, right? That is something that actually reflects the real material existence of a rebellious class, right? Of uh, yeah. right of, of of the working class, and so you know this connection between how do we how do we think about the relationship between ideas and matter or ideas and their kind of material um, foundations. And it's important to keep in mind that for Marx, the, the, the capitalism is, of course, an internally conflictual system. It's not actually marked completely right by, uh, by capitalists and bourgeois mm -hmm. theory and all this stuff. Those things have, uh, of course, more influence, but the the, the thought of 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 the sort of perspective of the working class um, choosing people not profits, for example, that's based on the real existing circumstances of our lives. Mm, absolutely, and I think one of the key aspects about that that is often forgotten, and 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 you put it so nicely there, is that you know the danger is that while I think a lot of more quote unquote ethical political theories or even Marxism tries to have an argument about ideals and idealism, mm -hmm. there's something very living in capitalist morality in which it's, it's extremely opportunistic. So mm -hmm. being able to continually stress these concrete aspects of, mm -hmm. you know, we are not going to allow this to be simply co-opted. Like mm -hmm. there is a fine and clear line here where on a very universal level, you are willing to choose, you know, profits over people. You are mm -hmm. willing to choose things over people. Um, and and I think, you know, we can get into it later or not, but it was really stark and telling in, in the backlash, I think, to the, the recent, you know, kind of discourses about looting and the uprisings. Right. And there was a kind of moment of like, before we even get into a, discussion about you know this as a tactic or what happened or etc there was a very clear point of like 
these protesters are talking about something quite literally like this group of people's lives don't matter in serious ways. Right. These are people. And right. you're talking about a target. Like right. you're talking about a PR. Like, you know, let's, this is, you know, right. the, the articulation, the crystallization of, you right. know, how you see what's valuable and how what we're trying to see is valuable. Absolutely. Um, right. The response from so many municipalities and, you know, we can talk about Trump or whatever, but uh, so many of the places where this was was happening, you know, where you saw these uprisings and then the kind of um, poo-pooing, finger-wagging response is in municipalities, um, oftentimes controlled by Democrats, right? You know, and so it's not, it's very bipartisan, <laughs> this kind of uh, emphasis on the value of uh, property over people. Uh, how many mayors did we say, see mm-hmm. declare absolute, you know, z- zero tolerance on any property damage? Um, but where's the zero tolerance on the murder of unarmed people? Uh, you know, Absolutely. we haven't seen. We haven't seen it. We've seen quite mm-hmm. the opposite. In fact, we've seen uh, gover- municip- municipal governments and state governments and the federal government, um, you know, take almost every opportunity to create the conditions that anyone could easily foresee uh, are ripe for the murder of unarmed people. So why is mm-hmm. that acceptable? Uh, but the only time that we get the sort of, uh, you know, this is absolutely unacceptable and we can't have this and not one wall can be tagged, right? Is <laughs> when it comes to, when it comes to things. Mm-hmm. And, and it, would, it was quite important, I think, here to recognize that, you know, while this was sparked in Minneapolis, that, I don't think it's been stressed enough. Minneapolis is now a state controlled by Democrats. And not mm-hmm. only that, the right. city council, as been shown, is fairly progressive, but its police force was often held up right. as an example of a progressive police force. And the, the kinds of aspects that came out is exactly that when we say something is systemic, mm-hmm. that is just a word. Right. Like we're pointing out it's part of the logical, if you will, and structural DNA of a society. And mm-hmm. having mere courses about it doesn't make yeah. a difference. You know, putting these like cosmetic aspect elements. And, and, and I think in this respect, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. when it came down to it, like there was almost this altruistic moment of like at the last inches, like when they were calling <laughs> you, it's like, you Not know, me. the government, it's full hand. It's like, yeah, we say we care about uh, non-white bodies, but if we have to choose between you know, uh, you know, having Walmart say they're never going to come to our city again, or maybe some of you dying, we're going to choose Walmart. Right. And I think in these moments, that's where why uprisings can be so important, among other things, is that it refuses to allow the contradictions just to sit. Right. That's it right. It forces those in power to make choices. And the mm-hmm. choices they make reveal where they really stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's also important that, you know, for me, and, I, and I'd be interested in your view on this before talking about more seriously the questions of white privilege as you've written about them, but I think sometimes I've noticed that people kind of will say, well, I really don't think actually Hillary Clinton is a uh, racist, or I'm sure that they're not actually right. you know, thinking that they're doing bad things. And it's like, I don't actually think that a lot of these people in everyday 
sit in a Machiavellian sense and say, how can I, you know, hurt the black community? How can I hurt poor people? Right. It's a question of when they have to make a choice structurally and then personally, what choice do they make? And that's right. when they decide. And so much of, I think, liberal politics is never forcing them to make that choice, keeping things in such a way so that they can actually maintain a status quo that is so immoral, is so unequal, and never actually forcing them to make, to actually show which side they're on, because they can kind of maintain the contradictions just enough that it feels as if they're never coming to the surface fully. Yeah, unfortunately. And I mean, and one of the things that is so uh, notable about these recent uprisings is that we're, we're talking about people who are systematically sidelined and shut out of political decision making. Uh, we're talking about people who uh, are experiencing all kinds of often quite deliberate uh, strategies to make sure that they do not have a say in how their cities are governed. And so we've seen um, of people of color, right, poor and working people spilling out onto the streets and, uh, and, 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 and insisting on not just being heard because that's that's important right but insisting on actually on on, on over on upending the table table right uh, you won't you won't give us a seat at the table well you know there goes your table <laughs> right um you know like making just like making that kind of direct intervention um, you know, especially when uh, every other avenue for uh, for for real agency um, within the system as it is is closed off. Absolutely, and, and I think then that's a kind of good point to say. Like, as they're abundant the table, and now allows us to think about some of the main driving ideas and terms that have been driving this movement in many ways. And how your work, I think, helps us to really interrogate them in a way that's both accessible but rigorous and serious. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I think that I was very, very impressed by, but also very interested in when I got uh, the first actual, I think it's the first uh, issue of Spectre, which is a uh, great mm -hmm. journal. <laughs> but um, I was like, oh, Vanessa Wilson is writing about white privilege, which I wasn't <laughs> completely surprised about, but it's also like, this could, this could be, you know, uh, really interesting. Um, and I think you really, really try to engage with it as a term that was both something that needed to be theoretically and conceptually unpacked, yeah. and then also treated as a political and rhetorical reality that needed to be engaged right. with at that level. Right. So, I'd be interested from all the things, why for you, um, not as a person, but as a thinker and in terms of your own work, but also at the moment, did you kind of say, okay, I need to really write something about white privilege and how it relates to Marxism. Why did you feel that was so important in this moment? Oh, that's great. Um, I mean, so one thing to say is uh, there's, an, uh, there's actually another paper, um, which is um, still... Um, it's not in print yet, um, but this is actually the second time I've sort of like in a in a in a written piece um, probed pre precisely 
white privilege. And um, there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, one of them is it's just a kind of, um, yeah, question about how do we intervene into ongoing debates? As you said, right, there's already this kind of rhetorical space that we're in. Um, and, and one of the things that uh, I see a lot of in my own discipline of philosophy, especially in work in philosophy of race, is there's this kind of um, uh, tension, right, uh, back and forth between uh, Marxist theories of race and uh, more critical race theory oriented uh, theories of race. And much of that uh, kind of um, back and forth in print, uh, it turns on this question, well, it turns on a few things, but one of the things that it turns on is, is this question of, well, what, what is the kind of genesis of racism, right? What is it? Mm -hmm. um, do, we, do we think about it as something that is produced in some way by capitalist uh, economic relations? Or do we think of it as having its own uh, origin that's independent um, of capitalism and uh, and having a kind of um, trajectory and development that is independent in some important ways of capitalism. So something like that tends to be the um, the core kind of bone of contention. And so you know, one of that that as a philosopher, right, got me thinking about categories and causation and the relationship between ideal and material acts of being, um, because those are those are the kinds of uh, underlying core kind of metaphysical questions that are at work um, when we're thinking about, you know, how do we understand the relationship between an economic system like capitalism that, of course, has all kinds of uh, ideological features, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how do we think about the relationship between that and between something like uh, race and racism, which see, you know, which has again an important claim to materiality, um, but tends to be thought of, I think, reasonably as a question of, well, what are the ideas that we have, and what are the what are the kind of social practices that we employ, um, and I think that um, there's there's a kind of simplistic way of thinking about that relationship. And that would be to say, well, there's um, class, pure, there's some pure category of class, some pure, you know, unalloyed class category. Um, and it kind of just gives gives rise to or from it, uh, you know, springs a race as an as a ideal superstructural uh, epiphenomenon, right? Um, now, I think that's a mistaken view. Lots of people think that that is the correct way to understand a Marxist analysis of race, um, which mm -hmm. makes me very unhappy <laughs> because, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
because it's not right. It couldn't it couldn't be further from a from a correct Marxist understanding of these things, um, and that we can tell just from thinking in general about how Marx thinks about the relationship between the economic and the and the sort of psychological or theoretical, which is that these uh, categories interact with one another. This is the dialectic and dialectical materialism. Um, that yes, we think that the sort of material aspect, or I, I always go back and forth about, you know, is it an aspect? Is it a, you know, I don't know, but like the material aspect of being, I'll say, is importantly fundamental, um, but it's not impervious to, um, it's not impervious to thought, right? The things, the ideas people have in their heads, of course, have a have an effect on what the economic conditions are and look like. Um, and if that weren't the case, then something like the white privilege concept wouldn't be as important as it is. It wouldn't have the effect that it does um, precisely in uh, helping to help, you know, helping as like a bulwark of capitalist rule. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of, uh, that's a big answer to your question, but essentially, <laughs> right, you know, starting, starting with this, um, this question of like, why is there this kind of divide in the literature between, uh, you know, so-called class-based ways of thinking about race and thinking about white privilege and so-called identity-based ways of thinking about uh, white privilege, what an undialectical splitting of the discourse. Um, these, you know, there's there's no in principle reason that for the most part uh, that these perspectives should be uh, considered incompatible. Now, the only thing that does make them incompatible is, of course, if, if you know, for folks who reject materialism in any sense and, you know, the, sure, like that's going to be incompatible. But there's there's lots of there's lots of work um, that is, uh, you know, that that takes seriously as it should um, the role of race in creating the world that we're in. That uh, you know that obviously is like completely compatible with and um, and 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 best uh, understood in light of right these questions about um, how is it that we produce our world right what are the circumstances in which we produce our world I'll just say lastly by way of response to that question um, I mean I think one of the things that's important and that I absolutely insist upon in my thinking about white privilege is that it, like all things, is produced, right? It's produced by human beings under certain conditions. Um, and so it can be unproduced, right? Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's the, uh, the kind of um, stance that I take and the way that I'm thinking about, about this uh, phenomenon. Mm. I mean, I was struck, we can get into um, a very particular part, the end of the article, which I thought was a very nuanced, but striking critique of uh, Macintosh's view. Um, mm -hmm. But in a way that I think was more encapsulating about what this signified as a type of logic and mm -hmm. why this is appealing but dangerous. But one of the aspects was, I have to say, and maybe you have a different experience being in the US, but from outside the US, 
and being in the UK where we've had something similar, I mean, the level of, I would say, I, I hesitate to use the word hate because in an age in which white nationalism and, you know, um, is, a, you know, you want to use that word very, very carefully, but I would say the passionate dislike, <laughs> you know, moderates who mm -hmm. I also have to be careful because they often now have, for them, I think, authentically co-opted in the age of Trump, um, a kind of radical pose, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, they feel quite radically, like, you know, we're the vanguard, we're on the cutting edge of like, you know, overthrowing this kind of tyranny of Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and but the ways in which they've weaponized race against aggressives, and also the ways in which mm -hmm. they've, I've been really struck because as someone who's, you know, uh, obviously not in the US, I can't be as involved as I used to be, but, you know, they've kind of created an erasure of the fact that these movements are not a caricature of just, you know, we only care about class, nor are they white middle class. I mean, these are movements that are led from the bottom, oftentimes by really strong non-white intellectuals, activists, and just everyday people. Mm -hmm. And you know, before getting into, I, I think, Barbara too, is like, I would kind of be interested in like how you feel white privilege has been weaponized oftentimes by people who would claim themselves liberal, but as a means of, in many ways, reinforcing, I, I think, a quite racist system. Hmm. Oh, that's a big question. Oh, sorry um, about that. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about that. Um, I mean, I'll just, I'll just like, take a piece of it and start talking, I guess. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, I mean, it's interesting. I guess, I guess part of what makes it big is that we're asking it, uh, you know, now in, in mid-June 2020, when over the past month that I think there has been a, 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 a rapid and very much real, uh, shift of consciousness, um, and, and a kind of recognition, a greater recognition of, um, issues pertaining to race, right, including amongst uh, white folks and, and many who consider themselves liberals. Um, I'm, I'm put in mind, I've been, I've been put in mind um, of a kind of d difference between this time and uh, 2016. Um, so I, like most Black people I know, I mean, I, it's hard for me to think of any who, of whom this is not true, uh, of course, knew that Trump was going to win. I mean, that just seemed perfectly mm -hmm. obvious. Um, yeah. And then he did win. Uh, and what followed was this kind of deluge of white surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found that so profoundly alienating. Uh, it was actually one of the one of the times in my life that I felt the most alienated that I ever have, right? Um, because I thought, um, how can you be this surprised? <laughs> mm -hmm. yes, <laughs> how can yes. you how can you be this surprised that the country is very racist, right? I mean, and that seemed to be in many cases the source of the shock, right? So there was a recognition that 
the only way that Trump could be that if Trump is president of this country, then that obviously represents a kind of political rot that is mm. at the center, right, of this yeah. country. Um, so there was an awareness of that, um, but and that's great. Uh, but but you know, but that sort of manifested particularly in oh, and that political rot is is racism, and uh, I. Of you know a, a a very surprised white liberal person had no idea that our country was that racist, and I just thought how not you know, <laughs> and um and it's hard because you know then I thought well if you didn't think the country was very very racist, how were you making sense of the terrible disparities and terrible outcomes? for black people and mm -hmm. people of color generally, right? How were you, what was your theory about why so many black people are in jail or why uh, black people have such terrible um, health outcomes? And, mm -hmm. you know, what, cause like, what was, what was your theory of all that then? If it mm -hmm. wasn't that the place is very, very racist. And so, you know, that I really experienced that as a, um, I think it's the time of my life when I, when it was just most acute to me and inescapable and deeply felt the kind of um, disregard for what black mm. people have to say about our mm. circumstances. Nobody mm. who had, who had ever really listened to black people talk could be surprised that Trump mm -hmm. would be president. You could, you know, you could be upset about it, right? But the yes. kind of deep shock, the way that that, the way that that clearly challenged so many people's understanding of what the country was, it was very um, disturbing to me because I was like, mm -hmm. well, what was your sense of the country? Um, of course, mm -hmm. that's all, you know, that's the, you know, as a, as a, um, you know, as it happens, I have all kinds of theories, right? Um, I, I mean, researched, thought out, right? Theories yes. about how this kind of white ignorance of reality is produced and the purposes to which it's put and, you know, and, and all this, all this, all these kinds of um, features of our epistemic uh, reality that, that play a role here. Um but it's, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the places that it manifests. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to see um, it's interesting to be in a, in a situation now where, again, we're kind of having this moment um, where yeah. lots of people and especially white people who may not have noticed this before are are really coming to terms with like how horrific uh racism is in this country um not mm. just as a kind of hangover of a sad past but as a very much a a, a living strategy uh and mm. ill today um mm. i mean i guess uh you know it's interesting to see that because i think the in 2016, there was this kind of sharp distinction between how can we go from Obama to Trump, right? Um, and and now I think part of the stage was set by how dissatisfied most people, most uh, liberals are with Biden 
as a candidate, yeah. right? And so I think that that had already set the political stage in a, in a different way um, where there was a kind of priming to, to see like something's really deeply rotten, right? You know, so the, the kind of realizations of 2016 had set in, years of Trump had set in, and then the, uh, the leader, right, of the resistance that gets thrown up, right, out of this electoral process is Biden, um, who I won't mm. say very much about, except to just, you know, report what I think everyone knows, which is that lots of people are deeply <laughs> unsatisfied <laughs> that that is the uh, the Democratic candidate. So I think that sets the stage in a different way where, um, where yes, there's this kind of shock and surprise that I'm that I'm I'm seeing lots of you know liberal white folks express, um, but it's within. I, I think there's more of a sense of the need for activism, right? The need, you know, Absolutely. that like that like there that actually this kind of strategy of of hoping for a leader from above, right? Hoping that we can just vote in someone who's going to fix this for us. It's so clear that that's not going to work. Um, I don't know if people are broken from the idea that that's in general the right way to go about politics. Um, but certainly I don't think anybody uh, thinks that the, you know, whatever might hang on this coming presidential election, um, it's not the case that one of these options is going to give us anything like what we need in order to secure racial justice. And so that mm -hmm. kind of shifts the political conversation uh, towards the grassroots. And I think it's one of the things that accounts for the what is just one one of the things that accounts for the fact that these uh, anti-racist protests, these Black Lives Matter uprisings, have been uh, some of the largest and most multiracial uh, mm. anti-racist protests to happen in anything like recent memory. I mean, you'd have to look back to the civil rights movement uh, for mm. anything like it, and and so mm. I you know I think there is this kind of questioning that's that's manifesting not just in a kind of you know nostalgia for the right kind of liberal candidate um but rather a realization that if we if what we want is real change uh you know the the ballot box that you know that's fine but like but actually the only the only um agent historical agent at this time that actually has the um, the means and the motive to create it is the is the people right is the masses of people who don't want this anymore who don't want this racist system anymore absolutely um, and um, there was something that really struck me there um, well a number of things um, and something that I've, I've been thinking about and, and certainly begun uh, writing about, which is mm -hmm. this kind of very notion of disposability. And mm -hmm. I was surprised after 2016. And, and I have to say that, not that I, I'm happy that I was able to predict it, but I was, I actually, I thought that Clinton probably might pull it out, but I was not sure. And I actually thought mm -hmm. that probably Trump was going to win. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, I thought that liberals who 
that they weren't critically reflective that they actually operate according to the same logic as the people who they claim to hate who are so racist, which is essentially saying, well, we're perfectly happy to vote for someone who meets our needs. Um, and, you know, as long as we don't have to see the damage. And in this case, there was a real sense in which we had someone like Clinton, who, I mean, for people who studied this, but I think it was even clear, I mean, she's almost to the right foreign policy-wise of Dick Cheney. Like, <laughs> you could say that she's modern in any way. And this was a sense in which saying, well, just as like a lot of Trump voters and people who might have voted for Obama then voted for Trump were saying, mm -hmm. well, we care, you know, we don't really care if black people are incarcerated as long as, you know, we get a job. Mm -hmm. Just like a lot of, I would say, upper professional class liberals who were white were saying, well, we don't really care if we bomb black and brown bodies around the world, as long as we get to feel good that our, you know, we voted for someone who wasn't racist and, you know, we're doing pretty well. And I think so that, I think, yeah. No, go, go ahead. I mean, yeah, no, I, I mean, I mean, I think logic there about the disposability of black people and then the ways in which now you have this movement from the grassroots in which people yeah. are saying, we're going to be disposed of anymore. White, yeah. black, like, we're not going to be left behind. Like, we, we're not, like, when you say Black Lives Matter, it's really about saying whose lives count. And it's very clear that an increasingly small amount of people lives actually matter right right like so it's almost like a, an uprising of saying we're sick of being disposable we're sick of being a bargaining chip for you you know yeah i mean i think that it's look the sort of like um the subjective political consciousness of of anyone right and especially you know the thing that um, it kind of goes under under the heading of like you know a kind of white liberalism, right? Um, it is it's it is itself um, a a product of a certain kind, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, you know uh, we've had we have to think about the relationship between racism as a national problem within the United States and mm -hmm. imperialism right and this is something yes. that uh martin luther king speaks about uh that uh you know that that you know any number of figures right have have talked about um this uh the 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 sort of the the imperialist um practices of the united states you know absolutely can't get off the ground unless you think ultimately that the lives of people uh, in places overseas and especially the lives of black and brown people um, abroad uh, just count less, right? Mm. And this is something that became super clear to me uh, when I was, uh, you know, really becoming educated within the anti-war movement, right? That, um, yeah, how how can you how can you justify these drone strikes that take out hospitals and weddings and, and all these innocent lives? Um, it's only it's only possible if you have a kind of racist, um, an underlying racist uh, set of assumptions that uh, it's in, that it's an acceptable. 
uh, Price, right? Um, and so, you know, the sort of like Madeleine Albright, you know, like kind of, uh, you know, we oh, we think it's reasonable, you know, we think we think this is an acceptable price to pay. Other people's children is an acceptable price for us to pay. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, there's there's really like this kind of uh, overwhelming larger structural i mean this really comes back to the question of morality um mm -hmm. that there is a a kind of dominant hegemonic morality that sends up very precise kinds of answers about whose life matters and mm -hmm. and how much um mm -hmm. and um and, you know, and we are all saturated with that. I mean, that's what uh, you know, racism, transphobia, sexism, xenophobia, right? All of these things, uh, they they participate in, they, they sip from this fountain of um, very kind of clear uh conceptions of value and whose mm. life has it and who doesn't and so um you know when we think about uh you know people who you know th those of us who identify as being on the left right i'm i'm a leftist right <laughs> you know uh, those of us who identify as being on the left right we you know we want to we want more we obviously we want uh, people to learn about our ideas and to use them and to find them helpful and to find them, you know, good ways of, of seeing the world. Um, and part of what that means is thinking about, well, you know, what is it about a liberal perspective? And by that, I mean, so, uh, so I mean something very precise when I say liberal, which is just the, the idea that we can solve these problems while keeping capitalism. Right. Yes. So, so the idea that um, we can uh, we can move towards social justice, we can make meaningful progress with respect to oppression and exploitation, uh, but we can do that right within a capitalist uh, system, right? So that's what yes. I'm talking about. When I talk about a kind of liberal perspective, and so. That means, you know, when we're talking to folks who have liberal politics and oftentimes we're going to be, you know, the anti-war protests were, of course, full, right, of, of self-identified liberals. That's what I was when I joined them, right? And so the question of like, well, how do we um, kind of, uh, you know, bring people uh, to the to, to sit with us, right? Or, or And how do we have conversations and how do we engage them and try to win people over to a radical perspective, right? That sees that mm. these problems are not um, just kind of unfortunate mistakes and add-ons to capitalism, but actually that they are the necessary result of capitalism. Yeah. How do we how do we bring people to see that? And so for that, it means that we have to think more broadly than, well, what is the specific subjective consciousness of particular liberals? We have to ask what is producing that consciousness, right? What is it about the society that we live in that makes that idea seem so obvious, natural, and appealing, right? The idea mm. that capitalism is a perfectly fine system and we just need to make some tweaks, but basically the system is okay as it is right um you know and so you know, it, it kind of it kind of 
um, pushes us to move to, uh, you know, to sort of do the thing that we're best at, do the thing we do best, which is the structural systemic explanations, right? Mm. Um, and then think about how to intervene in these conversations in that way. Um, for example, you know, and, and this has this has to do also with the kind of political conversations that we have uh, in the anti-war movement of the 2000s. One of the um, one of the big questions was, uh, do you say troops out now, or do you say something less, right? Which you know, end the war eventually, or <laughs> right? You know, this kind of thing. And this was a, this was a, a heated debate um, that mm -hmm. that folks would have. And um, you know, is it is it troops out now, or is it um, uh, you know, Kerry's position? was actually for increasing the number of troops. Uh, so his position was about winning the war. Well, yeah. if you're, you know, of course, if, if you have a, a left perspective on this and you understand that the war is a war against people who are seeking self-determination, um, yeah. then there's a real question. Well, what does that mean, win the war? Anyway, my Absolutely. point being, um, you know, when you put forward something like troops out now, it offers a kind of point of conversation because it 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 forces, uh, well, I don't know, it it causes, it it inspires, right? The list, the listener, presumably, to to think about, well, we can't obviously the troops can't come out now, right? Well, why not, right? What is it about? What is it about the you know the system that we're in about uh you know the way that these structures are set up, right? What is it? that you know given the the given the um overwhelming popularity of anti-war sentiment what is it that is stopping this from from happening right and and to and to kind of direct people's attention to the 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 actual contingency right of these things that seem necessary like capitalism right and mm. so i th i think like that's the way that we have to um to talk to people, right, is to try to show up the the that that these things are not necessary. That it can be entirely different. That it's possible to envision a world without uh, capitalism, and then to think mm -hmm. about the amazing possibilities that could be opened up, right, on the basis of a different way of producing our lives. I think because I think that's that's really brilliant, and and um, and. There's, you know, I'd almost be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, which is again a broad question, and mm -hmm. I might have to have you back on if it's ever <laughs> right, because I think, you know, we could talk for so long. Um, it's a little bit different than I think what I wrote to you before, um, mm -hmm. but along these lines about, you know, you're someone who's entrenched in a Marxist thinking and politics, and also mm -hmm. has taken seriously abolitionism, and I think when we start now a critical reflection of having people say, what is it, you know, another world is possible. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's a way in which sometimes it's very easy in these moments of excitement and uprising to say, well, these are just perfectly compatible. And it's not perfectly compatible. Like, I think that there's revolutionary protective tensions that are important. And mm -hmm. so, and one of them that I think is, is often overlooked is that, you know, well, I don't want to get into a right wing propagandist thing. I mean, we do have <laughs> to take seriously that, you know, Marxism in practice has produced something that is completely antithetical to abolitionism. I mean, you know, uh, as someone who, 
you know, uh, did my PhD on China. Okay, you know, you, you yeah. and say, okay, well, a Maoist or Marxist regime doesn't engage in policing practices because that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other side of that, I think that when you talk about things like abolitionism, you know, there's a very serious question that has to come up in terms of how do we morally discuss not just questions of uprising, but actual questions of, well, in a world without jail, will we have to put billionaires in jail if we have a revolution? And that might sound like a horrible question, but it's a serious question because I think you're going to see that, you know, if you actually create, like they bring Seattle, like an autonomous zone, Mm -hmm. if this would just spread, it's not as if the capitalist, you know... uh, I'm going to say, oh, that's cool. (laughs) I'd be like... (laughs) You guys win. Thanks for that. I mean, they're, you know, they're not a lot gonna of be them, all chill about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in a sense, as someone who spent so long both as an activist, but seriously thinking about these different types of things and from a moral perspective, what do you think a Marxist morality has to offer abolitionism and vice versa? And do you think that we're seeing something in which we can actually have a kind of new revolutionary perspective that is a kind of Marxist 21st century abolitionism? Or do you think that these are two different traditions that while they can speak to each other and, and you know, work together, that ultimately they're not necessarily compatible in terms of actually informing a kind of unified theory of, you know, Marxist abolitionism, that, that they are so separate in terms of some of their underlying, you know, epistemic, epistemic and moral assumptions. Well, I think here too, and um, and I hope I'm answering the question, but I think here too, it matters that we engage with kind of lofty, deep questions about human nature. So one of the things that you hear again and again is, well, how can we how can we abolish the police? How can we abolish prisons? because we're going to have criminals and we're going to have people doing these horrible things. Um, so one of, one of the things that is um, a kind of unfortunate feature of a, a lot of uh, law enforcement uh, thinking about society and about human nature and about policing is this idea that there that within humanity there is this subsection of humanity criminals <laughs> and that and that this is a kind of um ineradicable essential truth about the human condition that there are criminals capital c criminals right and they have always been with us and they'll always be with us and so on right um and that obscures all kinds of things like how the category of criminality is produced right who counts as a criminal and who doesn't even when they do really horrendous things someone might Mm -hmm. avoid the category of criminal i mean you can call down a bomb that flattens an entire city uh, and not be a criminal, yes. right? You know, and so that's a kind of odd feature of the use that category. Um, the category also, of course, is, you know, and it's, and it's naturalizing logic, of course, it lends itself very neatly 
to racist applications to say that, well, in fact, uh, the, the capital C criminals that are part of, of, of the human condition always, um, it turns out that also maps on somehow, right, to um, our need to designate people of certain races, uh, ethnicities, religions, and so on as criminal. Um, and so, so anyway, you know, my point being that there's all kinds of reasons to interrogate uh, that the categories of, of criminal and of, and of crime, right, and to ask where these come from uh, on a kind of theoretical level, right? Um, and then there's the more kind of practical question of, of course, it is true that people hurt each other. Right. They commit acts of violence against one another. Um, they commit acts of um, well, these are inherently violent, but of course, you know, um, sexual assault. Right. Um, they I mean, people do bad things to one another. And so that's the more kind of legitimate question, right, that people want to know, well, what happens when someone does something really bad to me? Right. And I think this is where the intrinsic inner connection between abolitionism, police abolitionism and prison abolition, abolitionism, and the vision of a different world that we can make uh, becomes most uh, kind of present and clear, right? Um, because of course, uh, people who want to abolish the police or abolish prisons usually don't want to stop there, right? It's usually part of a whole program of informational politics affecting all kinds of areas of our um, our world, right? So, for example, when we think about um, uh, you know things like violence, uh, well, sexual violence against all people, right? Against women, mm -hmm. men are victims of sexual violence at rates much higher than we generally acknowledge, right? Um, and and you know, non-binary and genderqueer people, right? So sexual um, violence of all types, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's that's there's there's reason to suspect. Right, that that is connected to a, a kind of larger way that we see that we we're encouraged to see one another as objects, right? Not as human beings, but as um, things to be dominated, right? Um, or if we do see each other as human beings, we see each other as human beings in this kind of very distorted way. Um, where the site, you know, the, the, the fact of a person's humanity functions mostly as a good opportunity to degrade them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, the, you know, the movement, the movements against um, police abolition, it's important to keep in mind that the reason that we are opposed to policing, uh, you know, as it's as it exists in this country, the reason that we're opposed to the massive prison system in this country is that it is a manifestation of a larger kind of dehumanizing logic that we're saturated mm -hmm. in, right? The 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 um the objection is to all of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Of course, you know, this is me and my more people sometimes tell me that I'm very optimistic. <laughs> and this is, of course, like, of course, like this requires a certain kind of optimism about the human condition, but not a 
not an unfounded optimism, um, because mm. we know that um, people, you know, rates, it's not as though rates of these kinds of crimes are the same everywhere, right? Um, it's not as though uh, we don't have all kinds of examples to give of, of people changing the way that they live together, right? And changing the way they treat one another. Um, that's, that's part of the plan. That's part of the project. And the problem is that policing and imprisonment are not aids to 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 uh to actually creating a society with less of this kind of degradation violence dehumanization right they they don't assist in that in fact um they they purvey it and make it and you know and yes. and 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 and, and, and regulate it and make it um you know part of our kind of our our public activity that you know that this is how we relate to one another in these um in these in these violent ways so um you know all, all of that to say in short right and not to be not to be at all pollyannish about any of this stuff right um mm -hmm. there you know but there's a huge difference um between a society that in every respect uh is designed to encourage um this dehumanization and to encourage us to behave in antisocial, uh, hurtful, harmful ways. Um, and the, the idea of creating a society where instead, like our incentive, our systems of incentives are set up a bit differently, right? I mean, how, how much of our, of, of our everyday culture just kind of encourages us to, um, think that it's legitimate and okay and even to be celebrated to mm -hmm. um, to be violent, especially against the vulnerable, right? You know, like our, our society encourages it in all kinds of ways. What if it didn't? <laughs> what if, what no, if instead, right? What if instead um, we had a society that incentivized different kinds of behavior? Would you mm -hmm. still potentially see, right, individual um uh you know ac actions that are um to be rejected sure um but they would be occurring within a context where we don't where we recognize that they are to be rejected right and we could treat them we could actually treat them as individual problems right um but right now we have a society that um that regularly is produces and is designed to produce um, you know, all kinds of terrible acts against one another. Mm, I, th I think absolutely. And, and that's such a good way to think about it. What are we morally justifying? And if we mm. morally justify something different. And, and that's why I think these uprisings are, are quite interesting as well, in the sense that they're actually offering people both concretely, but also in a very kind of pragmatic, speculative ways of getting them to, to think beyond the slogans of this is what actually it would look like if we didn't have a militarized police force. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. this is what, like, imagine your life if, and you know, when you were driving down the road and your taillight was out, it being put over instead of a police, it was someone who could actually help you. And right, you right. Like, yeah, there's that great meme like, oh, the department of, you okay? You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, <what? laughs> exactly. 
and and I, and I think I was struck by just you know why I appreciate what you've just said, but also your work in in the article was that these you know these things allow us to become speculatively what I call speculatively embodied mm-hmm. in a different world, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One in which we can actually quite imaginatively, but in a concrete way, say wow, like this is how things could look different. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. these aren't just slogans. So I think, you know, like you said, thinking about what a different type of world could be is so important. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know, I'm definitely, if it's all right, I'm gonna have to have you back on because there's so much (laughs) I want to talk to you. I love your work so much. Uh, But I will say like, thank you so much. I mean, another world is definitely possible. Yes. Ours to win. and. You know, you are a huge part of that, Vanessa. Oh, thank you. So kind. Yeah, yeah. I'll come back on any (laughs) time. Oh, I'm gonna take you up on that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World Is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember, until next time. Another world is not only possible, but happening right now.